Collective Conversations is a podcast of the Nazarene Collective. We are people from diverse communities united with one mission and one vision that invites us all to take our next steps of faith following Jesus together. Sometimes these steps seem massive or more like a baby step for others. And more often than not, we don't take these steps alone. When walking with others, next steps often take place as we simply move at the speed of relationship, one conversation at a time. Welcome to Collective Conversations. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is our last week of these bonus episodes, all about the seven series. Eric and I are here to, man, we are ready to enlighten you or to scare you. We've done a little bit of both over the seven weeks, (laughs) so we're at least consistent in that. Well, we um, are, are going to first start off, if you haven't been listening to these episodes, then I would encourage you to go back and connect some dots. As we've been talking along with the 7 Series, we just decided to go down a little bit of a road talking about the end times, and we'll do that here in a minute. But we've also been connecting to the sermon teachings that have been taking place. This last Sunday, we talked about Laodicea and spent some time just talking through what it looks like to have a lukewarm faith. It was a good Sunday, uh, neat, neat experiences in the services. In this setting of talking with Laodicea, is a scripture maybe you're very familiar with where Jesus talks about, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will I will not only come in, but I'll come in and eat with them and they with me. So we had a, a door set up in the sanctuary. And it was, I mean, it was something I used um, as I spoke. But then at the end of second service, we actually brought it down the floor and allowed people to, because everybody's wired different. Some people would rather just pray at their seat and have no one have a clue they're talking to Jesus. Um, others are comfortable enough to go to the altar and just, not that we believe anything magical is at the altar, it's just there's something about taking that physical step uh, out from your seat that represents a spiritual step, and you, you go and just spend time at the altar talking to Jesus. And we had some people up front, if anybody just wanted somebody to pray with them, but then we had the door, and the it was for those who just, man, there's just something tangible sometimes when you have an experience like that, and we just invited them to come forward and to open the door. I, I think it's sometimes very important to have that physical expression of something that's happening. And you're right, we we don't want to make the altar call the end all. But at the same time, if you hear a lot of people's testimonies, especially from an older generation, there was a lot that happened at the altar. And it was that physical response, not, not to mention there's an accountability that when you get up and you're moving, you can you can make all the you can make all the change inside and it's not any less valid but when you express that by moving forward, by responding, by walking through the door, there are people that are seeing that. And I was, I had the unique vantage point. I was sitting on the drums. Oh, that's right. So I, I was, I was up on stage watching as people come up. And what was really cool about it is as people were walking through that door, I could see people clapping mm-hmm. and I couldn't hear it because I had my, my ears in, but people were clapping and kind of cheering them on as they were walking through that door. There, was, there wasn't any finger wagging. There wasn't any looking down the nose. There was none of this judgmental, oh, I wonder why they're going through the door. It yeah. was legitimate celebration on behalf of those that were watching that unfold. Oh, yeah. I, I love the language of that the altar or any type of response is not a place of the shamed, but the unashamed, mm-hmm. who are in that moment going, I'm surrounded by people who express the same desires I have of wanting to get closer to Jesus. And and I know for myself, it genuinely was hard for me to respond that way, but I have also never 
had the experiences like I have had when I respond, I, the whole, um, oh, what's the phrase? Uh, the weight being lifted off your shoulders. Uh, that is what I have felt in times where I have taken that physical step that's represented a spiritual step. And sometimes by the time I get to the altar to pray, I'm at peace already, man. I, I just by getting up. Should you go down and do a lap? I or should. Kneel down while I'm already here. I mean, well, might as well kneel down. <laughs> that's when, oh man, in my, in my little church growing up, I was so terrified of responding. I still remember uh, it was revival services and the guy's up there and he's just preaching. I just remember squeezing the pew in front of me so tight. I mean, they talk about white knuckles. I was white knuckling that pew. You can't make me go. <laughs> but part of my fear was, I was oh, this will sound silly, but I was afraid, well, now my mom's going to think I did something oh, wrong man. or who's going to come down and pray with me. Mm-hmm. And I was always nervous about that. But but now I just see it as such a, a moment of freedom if you want it. All right. So this is going off track. All right. I don't mean to, but did you ever go down to the altar? And this is an unholy moment. You were talking about people praying with you. You were hoping that pretty girl, yeah, hopefully she comes down and prays with you. It never worked for me, but <laughs> but uh, there was always a, a, that, I wonder who's going to come down and pray with me kind of a thing. I thought, I thought you were going the opposite of that, that you went down to pray with a girl. Oh, no. <laughs> but in my very confused younger years, I would say, yes, there were times I was at the altar praying and a pretty girl come pray for me and my mind left Jesus instantly. <laughs> I think she might be interested oh, in yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, different. different why, why else would she come pray for me? So that was the unholy detour of, <laughs> of the altar call. But um, all of that to say, we, you often say it doesn't matter, you know, what if people think you're thinking about what do they think I did? Mm-hmm. What you did was be obedient to what the Spirit's saying, right. that's worth celebrating. That's That in and of itself is the um, is the win in responding to what the Spirit's doing internally. And don't, don't ignore those nudges. Uh, in services or in other places, don't ignore the nudge. And if there's an opportunity to take that physical step to represent what God's doing in your heart, then do it. Uh, don't fight it. It was neat. I mean, I you had the perspective from the drums. I'm sitting down there on the front row mm-hmm. as people are coming through they, they opened the door, speaking for themselves and into themselves, I'm opening the door to let Jesus in, and then they naturally walked through it. And as I'm talking to him on the other side, I just tried to catch him and pray with them, and the sincerity in their eyes mm-hmm. is what blew me away. Sure. I mean, it was a very authentic moment. It was so genuine, and I was just humbled to be there, and all I did was pray basically what we had talked about, you know, give him passion and zeal. And that, that they would continue to grow in that desperation for Jesus. And mm-hmm. No, you could even tell by the way they walked up there. I, it was, they were ready. They yeah. were, there was an attitude about it of, I'm doing something with Jesus right now. He's doing something with me. And that door was that physical representation. Well, if you weren't there, like we said, I uh, invite you to get online, watch, um, at least to, to understand more and connect some of the dots on the teaching. I did want to dive just a little bit deeper into the teachings, and we talked about how Jesus addressed the people and their how they were spiritually, in essence, poor. Uh, they were—well, uh, I'll just read the verse. And he said, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind—oh, man, I got to do it—and naked, not hey, naked. Hey, you be you. <laughs> but the whole part of what he was saying was— You've got all those things, but you don't recognize your own spiritual condition. 
And so we talked about on Sunday, just they didn't recognize they were spiritually poor, blind, and wretched. They didn't see that. And then part of just thinking it through more is it took me back to Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning with the Beatitudes. And it was there where Jesus started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for them. They will be comforted. It goes on there from the meek to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, and it goes on from there. But those first two, I've often heard, and I agree with it, that there's sort of, it's a foundational thought that when you, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who recognize their poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is that moment when you are realizing, I can't make myself right with God, can't go to church enough, I can't, by my own actions, secure my salvation, I can't pull off making myself right with him. So therefore, there's this awareness and you take it to the next step, which is that next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, once you recognize how poor in spirit you are, how how you you, you can't fix this relationship with God, it, it's going to take what he has done. You can't fix the sinfulness, the, the wretchedness like he used in, in, in that letter to the Laodiceans. It's that moment, then you mourn. I mean, when you reach that deep, deep depth of knowing this is beyond me, and I am incapable of, of making this right with God. That is when he steps in and says, well, they'll be comforted. Well, how are we comforted? Well, we're comforted by everything that took place on the cross. We're comforted, comforted by a God who loves us. But how often does it not take us reaching that point of recognizing where we are at, that we are spiritually poor and desperately in need of a Savior? The... I'm glad you used Francis Chan's profile, The Lukewarm. Yeah. Because I, I've i read quite a few books over the years, and my memory is not the greatest, so I don't retain a ton of that, but I will always remember reading that chapter and feeling incredibly um, convicted in in the profile of the lukewarm. I like I like a good litmus test, the sta- a standard something to measure up or stack up against. And so as you're reading that chapter and he's listing out you be lukewarm if you do this and this and this and I just remember thinking, "Oh my goodness. I I checked the box on a lot of those and I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want to be in that middle. I don't want to be indifferent yeah. in that." So I um, that was a very convicting chapter, but then bringing it along with what you talked about, preached about on Sunday, being in Christ, that the lukewarm is not something to combat itself. It's a symptom of what's already happening mm. on the inside. And so hmm. that's um, good. try to get to that, that point. So, Yeah. Well, it's always fun to break some of that down a little bit more, and, and hopefully for those of you... Uh, who are here that week and, and, and are listening now that, that helps you get a little even more in depth on that study. So I do have to ask. Oh yes. Did you, did you practice saying Laodicea or did you look it up? How did you, how did you know how to say it? Laodicea I've always known as saying it that way. Okay. Now I do, I, I do double check myself on many different things, anything that's in the Bible because I, I have a website of a dude from, from the Middle East and he helps me know how to properly pronounce the words. I, that's great. I've always said Laodicea, so I I appreciate it. I learned that's something else I learned on Sunday was how to properly say it. Uh, well, Crystal was telling my wife. Crystal was telling me that I was saying salve in the first service. Oh, you did say salve <laughs> instead of sa- salve. Salve. Yes. Yeah, I did catch that. 
Because she was making fun. She's like, you were so worried about saying naked. Yeah, which then, is also a reference to the message on Sunday you need to listen to. Oh, uh, yes, that's true. Well, we all mess up words, so oh, words mercy. are hard. We do, yeah, we do it often. <laughs> Someday I'm afraid they're going to pull out some remix of all the different words Don't we have said. Ideas. Oh, man, we it's have, scary. We have looked at that. Sean, Sean has a gift of pronouncing biblical names in his own. <laughs> he just says it really fast <laughs> and to get through it. And we we were going to look for that one day, but that was a lot of work. So oh, man. The SJE version. He there you say. go. Well, we are going to sort of wrap up our final end times conversation by simply looking into some of the references you find in Revelation 21, 22. But it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, as we've done with past uh, conversations, we keep most of the context of the scripture to just Revelation. There are different places uh, in First Peter and in some of the Old Testament where you can find some of these references too. But we're going to stick to just what we've found in Revelation. And as always, we're just trying to help you think. We're not here to dictate an answer as much as here's what we have based off scriptures. And if there's something that's maybe a different opinion, we'll try to express that as well. But today we talk about the new heaven and the new earth. So we got to look at some timeline here. What does, uh, when does this happen? Uh, it's the thousand year reign of Jesus has ended. Satan has been defeated and is thrown into the lake of fire. The dead and living are judged. And if your name is not in the book of life, you join Satan in the lake of fire. But if your name is in the book of life, you spend eternity with God and Jesus and everyone else who, whose name appears in that book as well. If you read through these final chapters, these final two chapters of Revelation, we see John describing and referencing a new earth, a new heaven, and a new Jerusalem. Well, as we talk about the new earth, this is where you need to understand people have different views here. Some think this will be a completely new creation uh, with no connection to the old. It's the idea of a replacement. And so some people just see it as this earth is gone. And it's going to be destroyed and gone. Others see it, though, as it is a redeeming the earth as we know it, that there's this restoration taking place. And uh, the Greek word used for new uh, actually has a couple different meanings, and you could use both of them fit here. I mean, there is the idea of time, that something new is because of its time, which would be the idea of this almost replacement. But then the other one is referencing uh, the quality so there's a newness. That's the renewing type thought that comes into mind with that. When you think of it that way, and that's that the Greek word new that's used in regards to this sentence and these words of this new earth, the new heaven, it's that the idea of a change of quality. It's almost like the renewing. It's the restoration of the redeeming versus the actual destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, people have different views on that, but that's one way to lay it out. Whichever path you want to go there, one thing that's clear is that there is a new Jerusalem. So when we talk about this new Jerusalem, um, and we talk about finally arriving, maybe maybe this is the spot. <laughs> we have found the ending. We have found where we're, we're going to end In eternity. Up. So I guess that's not really an ending. It's That's true. There's no <laughs> en- end of beginning of the new, I don't know. So this is how John describes his conversation with the angel about the New Jerusalem. It is 1,400 to 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. There's a little bit of a cube type of structure to, the, the, to this um, city. The foundation is square, 
but people kind of debate whether it's going to be pyramid style, cube style, if it goes up like the cone or yeah. just, you know, literally going to be a cube in the sky. They think on that a whole lot more than I do. Because <laughs> I can't, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to visualize and I can't. And there are people way smarter than us that probably give us reasons why it's one way or the other. Yes. There's no temple in the city because you, you don't, they don't need it. And when, you, especially when, remember you're talking about John and the people who are originally receiving this, the thought of the temple was significant. So for him to say there's no temple there, because you've got God, you've got Jesus there, there's, there's no need for it. Talks about a river flowing through the streets, and this is a river of life from the throne of God and Jesus, and then the tree of life, which we read about in Genesis. It's in that city producing a number of fruits, 12 different fruits is what it tells us, a different fruit for every month, and my brain could not help but go to Christmas vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's the jelly of the month club. <laughs> It's the gift that keeps yeah, on those, giving, those, Clark. Those fruit, I mean, that's maybe blasphemous, but that's the fruit that keeps on giving. And that's, <laughs> I guess that's literally what it is. So other things we know. There is no sun or moon. The light comes directly from God's glory. The walls have 12 gates that are inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, found, the 12 foundations have inscribed on them the names of the 12 apostles. This is the city that there is the reference of no more death, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more crying, and no more pain, which is comforting to know. While that's not the ultimate goal, it's just to be free from everything that we face in this life, to be away from the bad stuff. Our ultimate goal is to be united with Jesus, to be with him forever. He is the goal. He is the end. And in that, then, because of his presence, that there is none of those things. There is no death. There is no mourning. There is no sickness, crying, or pain. But everything uh, connected with the curse of sin is gone because in the very presence of God, there is no room for sin. There's no way that that could exist because we get to spend eternity in God's presence. So is there going to be a new earth and will that new earth be a replacement or will it be simply redeemed and restored? I think it's great to have the conversations. I think it's great to have debates. I think it's great to go down those paths. But ultimately what we have to recognize is that when you have chosen to follow Jesus and we enter into eternity, the most profound element of it should be you are going to forever be in the presence of God and the presence of Jesus. And everything else, I think the things we debate and talk about and wonder about will have a lot less significance. I, I don't think we can fully grasp, and I know we can't fully grasp, what it means to be in the full presence of God. Because when we when we experience him here, it is veiled. It is, there is, like he talk, told to, Mo, to Moses, if you had all of me, you wouldn't be able to handle all of me. But in, mm. in heaven, when we're in his very presence all the time, I think the idea of worship changes that we, we can't help ourselves mm. being in this pure, holy light. Right. Um, presence of God, that, that that's just going to be our natural response. Well, Jesus said in Revelation 21, 5, he's doing something new. So whether it will be a new earth that's replaced or renewed, God is doing something new and it's for us. It's for believers to, to enjoy and be in his presence. One thing's clear, like Eric mentioned earlier, the curse of sin no longer matters there. And this place will be without sin, but we will be in God's presence and you're going to get to see Jesus face to face. Well, I want to leave you just with those final, some of the final words we read in Revelation 
Chapter 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And then those last verses just simply say, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Well, I look forward to um, being with you next week as we just, uh, man, continue to take in collective conversations together. 